Well, it's a privilege to be with you this evening and to provide a positive argument for why Christianity is necessary in the public square. By way of introduction, I want to note that religion is an indispensable component of the public square. Religion is an indispensable component of the public square. Since the public square is encapsulated by the ideas of human beings, and since religion is an idea at the forefront of man's mind, any suggestion to the contrary would necessarily entail the public square ceasing to be the public square. Stated differently, you can't have the public square without human ideas, and you can't encounter human ideas apart from engaging with religious inquiry. Indeed, religion is at the center of any culture. Religion is entwined with the public square. It was 31 years ago when James Davison Hunter published Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. In that publication, which was devoted to exploring how the American public square has been molded by the likes of religion, family, education, politics, and entertainment, that publication was noteworthy in its remarks surrounding the prominence that religion enjoys in the public square of any civilized society. Despite being a relatively unknown professor of sociology and religion at the University of Virginia back in 1991, Hunter's treatise has since left an indelible mark on early 21st century considerations of American culture. I want to share an excerpt of that book with you this evening that I think will put to the forefront of our minds a a very significant thought to consider in light of how this particular work by Hunter has since shaped our culture and our perception of religion in the public square. Listen to this quote from Hunter. According to Hunter, here's a quote, At the heart of culture is religion or systems of faith. And at the heart of religion are its claims to truth about the world. The struggle for power in the public square is in large part a struggle between competing truth claims. Claims which are by their very nature religious in character, if not in content. Faith and culture, then, are inextricably linked. By elucidating a broader cosmology or worldview, faiths not only link the symbols of public culture with the symbols of private culture, but they also infuse the symbols of each sphere with universal, if not transcendent, significance. Despite the constraints modern societies have placed upon more traditional religious authority to remain sequestered in the private sphere, the impulse to synthesize and universalize public and private experience remains one of the central and unchanging features of religion in the modern world. End quote. When viewed from a sociological perspective, it's easy to conceive the validity of Hunter's observations. By definition, religious convictions are metaphysical in nature. They are truth claims about reality that directly impact the worldview associated with a given religion. Such truth claims carry transcendent significance, and they can rarely be confined to one's private manner of thinking. In other words... Religion in the public square will organically produce disputation on what religious beliefs are true and what religious beliefs are false. Moreover, the trajectory of one's life 
and the method by which one interacts with society will inevitably reflect one's most deeply held religious commitments. Hence, what Hunter deems as a struggle for power in the realm of the public square is ultimately just an acknowledgement of antithetical ideas vying for religious persuasion within a civilization. And consequently, struggles for power, both real and perceived, tend to ensue. But is there more to the story than what can be deduced from the surface? Are ideological tensions in the public square merely explainable by concerns for power, self-seeking privilege, or the advancement of tribal agendas? While such motives may certainly undergird proponents of all world religions, it is my contention this evening that biblical Christianity is not characterized by such distinctives. In fact, I'm going to argue throughout the remainder of this lecture that Christianity's concern for its place in the public square is motivated by two prevailing factors. Two prevailing factors that are motivating or undergirding Christianity's concern for its place in the public square. The preliminary factor is epistemological in nature, and the ancillary factor is ethical in nature. Epistemologically speaking, starting with the, the first factor, epistemologically speaking, if Christianity were not true, then one would not be able to possess epistemological certainty about anything regarded as true in the cosmos. And secondly, ethically speaking, without exposure to the truths of Christianity, a society will lose all objective grounds for identifying and safeguarding moral absolutes. As such, the remainder of this lecture will employ a four-pronged approach to demonstrate the legitimacy of the aforementioned propositions. How am I going to show you the legitimacy of the aforementioned propositions? Well, this is going to be the fourfold structure upon which we follow. First, to begin, attention needs to be addressed toward the allegations that Christianity has sought eminence in the public square for disingenuous purposes. From there, secondly and thirdly, I'm going to devote time to unpacking those epistemological and ethical reasons for seeing Christianity as necessary in the public square. I'm going to get into the weeds of those two prevailing factors that I mentioned just a couple of moments ago. And then lastly, by way of conclusion, I will provide some thoughts on how Christians can effectively champion the necessity of having their faith in the public square. Upon doing so, it is my prayer, it is my utmost desire that the people of God will not only grow in their awareness around the importance of defending Christianity's place in the public square, but that they will also be motivated and that they will also grow in their diligence to consistently live out their faith before a watching world. So for tonight's lecture, I'm hoping that the, the head knowledge that you are able to gain, or at least I hope that you will gain from this presentation, my prayer is that that head knowledge will ultimately traverse into heart knowledge and that it will drastically impact your witness before a watching world. So for starters, how can one go about addressing concerns regarding Christianity's motives for having a place in the public square? Well, first and foremost, it is necessary to point out how Christians have a history of being misunderstood in the public square. Within just three decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, a paradigm would be concretized for how the majority of believers in the West would experience life over the next two millennia. In the summer of 64 AD, 
A severe wildfire engulfed the city of Rome, leaving roughly three-quarters of it in ruins. Despite initial speculation that Nero Caesar was the culprit in organizing the wildfire to reconfigure Rome's infrastructure, it did not take long for Christians to be falsely accused of arson. To the average first century citizen residing in the Roman Empire, it would not have appeared far-fetched to see Christians as a threat to the well-being of their society. After all, those Christians were said to have their own king. Those Christians had lives that were marked by an unwavering allegiance to a man that they claimed to have been raised from the dead. And furthermore, rumors swirled about the incest and cannibalism that would occur during the gatherings that these Christians would have on a weekly basis. Just take a step back for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes of the average secular-minded citizen living in first century Rome. Given the disturbing nature of these false allegations, should it have come as any surprise that under the reign of Nero Caesar, Christianity was regarded as a threat? Should this be a shock to us if we just put ourselves in this context from the outside looking in? I think if you're honest with yourself, the answer would be a resounding, no, it wouldn't have been any surprise at all. But that just proves the point of this aspect of the lecture. Needless to say, Christianity and Christians themselves, the religion as an ideology, and the Christians themselves, those who adhere to that ideology, it all has a history of being misunderstood in the public square, both the religion and the people who adhere to that religion. And to make matters even more unfortunate for followers of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries, misconceptions about their faith were not only widespread during seasons in which they were on the fringes of society. Whereas the first century Christians were targeted for being a subversive threat to broader civilization, many subsequent generations of believers have been accused of using their faith as an overt means to bolster their agendas for the public square. In other words, Christians were not just considered a problem by society. Christians were not only misunderstood by society when they were on the fringes, but this also is demonstrated when they're at the very center of society as well. Consider just a few of the more prominent examples of this reality. I'm going to quote some excerpts from the public square, Union of Church and State, What We Can Learn from History and Scripture. This is just a sampling of ways in which Christians as individuals and Christianity as a comprehensive religious system or a comprehensive ideology. Here's just a few prominent examples of how this system was not only misunderstood in the society in which it was a part, but this system and these people, they used their faith as an overt means of pushing forward their own agenda. Let's go down the list together. Example number one, Emperor Constantine's elevation of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire from the 4th century onward, which would result in mandating citizens to subscribe to the faith even if doing so was contrary to one's conscience. Example number two, the medieval church's tyranny over unbelieving people groups as expressed in the holy warfare as demonstrated through the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisitions. Third example, the theocratic nature of Geneva, Switzerland during the 16th century, a byproduct of John Calvin's significant influence over both the church and the state. Example number four. 
heavy physical and religious persecution being levied on the native people groups residing in New England during the formation of the American colonies. Fifth, in the generations leading up to the Civil War, the heavy support and facilitating of institutionalizing slavery throughout the United States by churches residing in the southern regions of the country. And six, and the last example I want to cite from this particular work, in the 20th and 21st centuries, ignoring pivotal tenets of doctrine that divide Roman Catholics and Protestants for the sake of joining together for self-serving political and cultural aspirations. My friends, to be sure, each antecedent testimony reveals that Western expressions of Christianity have done little to assuage critique centered around its role in the public square. In fact, if these historical case studies were allowed to stand as viable representations of biblical Christianity, then one would be absolutely justified in positing that Christianity's concern for its place in the public square is motivated by a desire for cultural power and self-seeking privilege. Those concerns would be 100% justifiable if this was a, a comprehensive survey of what biblical Christianity is all about. However, as has been confessed by believers at various points over the past 2,000 years, especially posterior to the Protestant Reformation, Scripture is the standard to evaluate the core beliefs of Christianity and whether the behavior of its adherents are consistent thereto. In other words, if it can be shown that the chronicled abuses of self-identifying Christians in the public square are not in fact in alignment with God's Word, then by necessary consequences... The concerns of those who are antagonistic toward Christianity's position in the public square will be necessarily diminished. And thankfully, the Bible is very clear in its condemnation of those who would do anything for selfish gain. There are many passages that we could turn to in Scripture that could be quoted to corroborate this assertion, but for now, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 will prove sufficient. Allow me to read that excerpt from Scripture in its totality. I hope that it will demonstrate to you just a small sampling of what biblical Christianity is supposed to look like in practice. The Apostle Paul wrote this passage and really wrote the entirety of his letter to the Romans in the mid to late 50s AD. And listen to what he writes here. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. My friends, that's the Apostle Paul, one of the the most significant Christian leaders in the history of the church. And what do we learn from this text? Well, we learn that when faithfully lived out and evaluated on its own terms, biblical Christianity is thoroughly good for the public square. What civilization would not be benefited by the presence of those who modeled these incredible virtues listed in the text we just considered together? Selfless love, hatred for what is evil, celebration of what is good, self-sacrificial hospitality, patience in the midst of ill treatment, sympathy toward one's neighbors, humility, and peace with all men. And the final analysis... My contention is that any context devoid of Christianity will reap far more consequences than benefits. Therefore, out of a love for neighbor, may all believers never grow weary in persevere, uh, persevering and promoting their faith within the public square. And that brings us now to consider the epistemological and ethical value that Christianity brings to the public square. According to biblical Christianity... God's grace and God's truth was consummately manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. It was supremely demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, such that Jesus himself could declare that he is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to a relationship with God. What's more, because of Jesus' identity as Logos, he is not only the personification of God's truth, but he's also the arbiter of God's truth. That is to say, all truth in reality is only truth because Jesus, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, has established it so. It's proven credible. If these claims made within the framework of biblical Christianity are true, then the aforementioned propositions would necessitate seismic implications for biblical Christianity's place in the public square. And why do I say that? Well, because if absolute truth is rooted in biblical Christianity, then the public square would be unable to offer truth nor account for the truthfulness of anything without first presupposing biblical Christianity. In other words, epistemological certainty, that is to say, justified true belief, cannot be obtained in the public square if biblical Christianity were not true. To demonstrate why this is the case, to prove how this is in fact a cogent form of argumentation, we must direct our attention to prove how three of the most basic preconditions for epistemological certainty are contingent on the triune God of Christianity, namely laws of logic, uniformity in nature, and the reliability of human sense perception. Let's start with laws of logic. Number one, without biblical Christianity... There is no objective grounds for laws of logic. The Bible establishes a universal and unchanging basis for why rational human discourse is possible in the first place. Therefore, mankind cannot reason, and mankind cannot embark upon intellectual changes without employing the laws of logic that his creator has entrenched into reality. Secondly, apart from biblical Christianity... There is no objective rationale for the uniformity of nature. The Bible teaches that God upholds and sustains all things in His created order by the word of His power. As such, human beings can trust and presuppose that creation will continue to function with general regularity and predictability. 
And third, aside from biblical Christianity, there is no objective basis for regarding human sense perception as generally reliable. The Bible states that every person will have to give an account to Jesus Christ for how they lived during their time on this earth. Doctrines such as these, teachings such as these from Scripture confirm that human sense perception is largely dependable. Otherwise, how could such an account be given in the first place? How would it be possible to objectively and definitively account for one's life if their human sense perception was not dependable? My friends, from the dawn of existence, the testimony of human life is one that exemplifies each of these preconditions for epistemological certainty. Consequently, even if a person rejects the Christian faith with their lips, they must still live as if Christianity is true. Whether realized or not, in every instance that a person utilizes the laws of logic, enjoys the uniformity of nature, or applies sense perception to the extramental world, they in fact presuppose in practice the fidelity of biblical Christianity. When analyzed from a biblical perspective, all people residing in God's world must play by His rules in order to live and move and have their being therein. On the other hand, when viewed from the framework of ethics, the Christian faith solidifies an absolute, objective, and universal standard for human ethics. When examining both the Old and New Testaments, we find that the Bible testifies to ethical precepts being written on the conscience of every human being. Whether at the individual or corporate level, it is for this reason that all people will at some point in their life lament manifestations of injustice and unrighteousness. Even the most staunch atheist, even the most staunch unbeliever or adherent to a different religious system that, that seeks to usurp and dismiss all objective ethical standards in reality, at some point in their life, they're going to show that they can't live out consistently what that worldview or what that religion entails. Try as we may, my friends. It's impossible to escape the ethical guideposts that have been hardwired into our DNA by the living God. As such, given the inescapability of the ethical standards inherent to human nature, biblical Christianity must be seen as a necessary component to the public square. Without exposure to the truths of biblical Christianity, all grounds for human flourishing and ethical norms will inevitably evaporate into oblivion. So we've now seen a refutation to the notion that Christianity's concern for a place in the public square is motivated by a desire for cultural power and self-seeking privilege. We've also now seen how biblical Christianity provides an objective basis for epistemological certainty and absolute ethical standards in the public square. By way of drawing this lecture to a conclusion, I want to now briefly offer a charge to the body of Christ in light of all that has been discussed up to this point in my presentation. We find on the basis of passages such as 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, to that the people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, are called to destroy every obstacle to the gospel, and they are called to dismantle every obstacle to the truth of God's word at its very root. How else, my friends, for you in the audience tonight who are Christians, how else... Can this task be fulfilled apart from God's people, you and I, followers of Christ, 
How can this task be fulfilled if we're not intentional to see our faith at the forefront of the public square? My friends, if the people of God are not willing to champion their faith before a watching world, and if they are not vigilant to showcase the superiority of their worldview to other unbiblical and false competing ideologies that exist, then the obstacles that we face to Christianity in this world will only continue to compound and compound and compound. It's sober reminders like these that should motivate us, believers, to grow in our propensity to give an answer for the hope that is in us within the public square any chance we have an opportunity to do so. So in the days to come, it is my sincere prayer, speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ who are here in the audience tonight, it's my sincere prayer, it's my utmost desire that God will raise up droves of blood-bought saints to protect biblical Christianity's place in the public square until the Lord Jesus Christ returns or calls us home to glory. Thank you very much for having me this evening. May God richly bless you all.